This is Archive Atlanta, episode 27, Nellie Peters-Black. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lamos. Hey everyone! So March is Women's History Month, and I really wanted to have an entire episode on a woman from Atlanta's history. Before getting into today's person, I just want to lament on how very little detailed women's history is out there. Of course, the big names um, have more than others, but it's really hard to find enough to fill even a 20-minute episode. And don't get me started on minority women. Um, There's a whole list of African-American women that I had that changed Atlanta, but I found myself needing to create an episode that had two or three of them lumped together and call me stubborn, but I didn't want to do that when there are men that have had their own dedicated episodes. The reality of women's influence in Atlanta's earliest history is not always tangible, so there's no downtown office building still standing with their name on it or even a company named for them that still exists. Instead, women worked within their confines, confines created by patriarchy, religion, and society, usually behind the scenes or through the influence of their husbands. And you can see that from white women from prominent families were able to make louder impacts than others, and this week is definitely one of those cases. Today, I'm sharing the story of Nellie Peters Black, a woman very much from one of these white, wealthy, socially prominent Atlanta families, but the way she used her time and position to affect almost every part of Atlanta is inspiring. It's always difficult to judge someone that lived in a completely different time than you or I, but after Nellie's death, the paper said that if she had been a man, she would have certainly been a U.S. senator. So I tried to put on that hat when doing this research, the hat of strict Victorian, religious, patriarchal, and societal rules and norms that Nellie on one hand embraced, but yet also pushed up against as much as she respectably could. Before getting started, I want to explain the social gospel movement and its connection to women in the progressive movement in the South. Social gospel was the idea of applying Christian ethics and values to issues of social justice, like economic inequality, crime, alcohol, poverty, child labor, poor schools, you name it. It's funny because in our current world, these are thought of as liberal left-wing issues, and then religion is tied to conservative right-wing so it's, it's an interesting thing to see how the past had these two together. The prevailing ideas at this time were a pretty paternalistic, um, the I know what's best. So although it's coming from a good place, it was this Christian belief that the poor needed to be taught the way and lifted out of their circumstance. Interestingly, for most white Christian reformers, this was targeted to poor whites. But this also existed within the black community between upper and lower classes, which, you know, is a whole other episode. Before getting into Nellie's story, I'll start with her family. Her great-grandfather was a judge and associate of George Washington. Her grandfather was the reporter of decisions for the U.S. Supreme Court. And her father is someone that we call one of the founders of Atlanta. Her father, Richard Peters, was born in 1810 in Pennsylvania, and at age 26, he was offered a job to build the Georgia Railroad. He's part of that early group of railroad men that purchased large swaths of land in the future Atlanta. Just like L.P. Grant, who was actually one of his best friends, he owned a ton of acres. 
When the railroad was completed, Richard was named superintendent. And he founded the first steam factory, opened a flour mill, and also happened to buy the 405 acres that we now call Midtown. In 1848, he married Mary Jane Thompson, the daughter of another early settler and pioneer um, of Decatur. His name was Joseph. And Joseph was a doctor um, and actually president of the Atlanta Medical College, which I just mentioned in the Grady Hospital episode. So Mary Jane was born in Decatur, but has early memories of riding in the family stagecoach to Marietta, passing what would eventually become Atlanta. She was a member of one of the earliest charities and social clubs of her time, which no doubt passed that along to her children. The Peters would go on to sell and donate the land for Georgia Tech, develop Midtown Atlanta, and actually Penn Street is a nod to his home state, and they built the first street railway in 1871. As expected for a white, wealthy Atlanta man at the time, enslaved people were listed among his property, and he had five in his Atlanta home and 16 in his farmland in Gordon County. So for Richard and Mary in 1848, this was a really prominent marriage in a town that had just been named Atlanta one year earlier. And this marriage would produce nine children. Not all of them made it out of infancy, as was common at the time, but several children would grow to become wealthy and prestigious as well. Their second-born child and first daughter arrived in 1851, and they named her Mary Ellen, but Nellie for short. Nellie was about 10 when the Civil War broke out, and by the time the fighting arrived in Atlanta, her family's position of power allowed them to escape the city and bring their money and very precious belongings with them. She did, however, visit makeshift hospitals um, with her mother, and they would bring coffee and biscuits to wounded soldiers. And so this was kind of the beginning of her love for service. After the war, she was sent to her father's home state of Pennsylvania and educated at the Brook Hall Female Seminary. After graduation, she returns to the city, and family legend is that her parents offered her a choice of gifts for her accomplishments— a diamond ring, or a horse. And Nellie chooses the horse, and she names it Diamond. It was said that you often saw her riding her horse around Atlanta, visiting poor white neighborhoods, um, giving goods, or helping the poor. Her love of animals, uh, especially horses, led to the formation of the first Georgia chapter of the SPCA in 1876. And she was so concerned about horses that had been tied up in Atlanta streets on hot days that she successfully petitioned the city council to install six drinking fountains around the city for people and for horses. In 1874, Nellie organized the city of Atlanta's first mission called Holy Innocence. Um, But because of her dedication and her efforts with that, they often called it Miss Nellie's Mission. In my reading of Nellie's life, I wonder if she would have gotten married if she actually had a choice. I think that even in 2019, especially in the South, there is such an expectation and pressure of marriage in families, but Victorian-era Atlanta was no joke. In 1877, at St. Philip's Church, 26-year-old Nellie Peters would marry 45-year-old George Black, who was a lawyer and a widower with four kids. George was the son of a wealthy plantation owner, and similar to her parents' marriage, this was certainly a power couple of the time. The family, though, didn't live in Atlanta. They went to live in Sylvania, uh, which is about halfway between Augusta and Savannah. 
Now, moving to the country didn't really stop Nellie, so her civic pursuits um, would not end. She actually established All Saints Episcopal Church in this very small town, um, which wasn't didn't become a super popular church, um, but it did last many years, and then it was even around after she passed. She and George would have three children together, Nita, Louise, and Ralph. And George Black, um, her husband, served in the Georgia Senate, and in 1881, he was elected as a congressman. Sadly, the following year, he would suffer a debilitating stroke that would leave him partially paralyzed. And Nellie and George had only been married for five years. She would continue to care for him until his death in 1886. In a strange way, widowhood was a freedom for many women in the Victorian era. As a woman, you could not vote. Um, and as a single woman, there was no way for you to hold property or run a business. So when your husband died, it sounds kind of weird, but it becomes acceptable for a woman to handle some business affairs or property affairs. You kind of had this legitimate reason to do these things. Nellie would return to Atlanta in 1888 and bought a cottage on Petrie Street right across the street from her parents' new house. There are historical photos of the Peters um, Peachtree Mansion, and it sat on Petrie Street between 4th and 5th Streets. So try to picture a mansion there. It's pretty hard. <laughs> and then try to picture a small cottage across the street. She spent much time with her family, especially her father. She actually wrote uh, like a family history book that's been published. And her father would die in 1889. And she owned um, rental property. She co-owned a company with her son. And then she actually took over management of um, the Peters Farm in Gordon County, which we'll talk about in a minute. In 1894, she joined the Every Saturday History class, which was like a study club for wealthy white women. It's interesting to me that Nellie didn't attend college for somebody that pushed really hard for free kindergarten, for women in universities. But at the time, it was not normal for high society white women to do so. And Nellie was very much a follower of the customs at the time. In 1895, she helped to organize the Atlanta Free Kindergarten Association. They call that the AFKA. And the first free kindergarten in Atlanta opened on Magnolia Street, and it was to serve the children of the Atlanta Cotton Mill. Now, don't confuse this with the Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill. The Atlanta Cotton Mill was uh, the first in the city, and I think it was located somewhere near what is currently downtown. I mentioned this in the Cabbage Town episode, but Georgia had some of the most lax child labor laws, and the first free kindergartens to pop up around the city, if you track them, they're always centered around or near mills or factories. So just these children are not going to school, so they're trying to put free school available as close as possible. The following year, she would be elected president of the AFKA, and she would hold that title for the next two decades. She successfully got the Atlanta public school system to incorporate kindergarten as part of their program in 1919. And she also pushed for women in higher education. So although women were allowed to attend classes at UGA in 1911, they were not allowed to become full-time students until 1919. Nellie was also a member of the typical uh, white women organizations of the time, so the Daughters of the American Revolution, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, the Colonial Dames, uh, and Pioneer Club of Atlanta. Yet, 
when you see this stuff, she was members of a lot of stuff, but she didn't really do the bulk of her work. So her bread and butter, so to speak, was the Christian charity work for those in need. And I talked about this in um, last week's Greedy episode, but Nellie Peters Black was on the founding board of the King's Daughters Hospital, which would be the first free hospital in Atlanta. And most of the women that were involved in this early hospital became part of the Women's Auxiliary Board that helped to establish Grady. That same King's Daughters uh, organization would also open the first private treatment facility for tuberculosis in 1901. Another thing I've also talked about in the past in, in the Piedmont Park episode is the Cotton States International Exposition. Nellie was on the Board of Lady Managers, and the job of this board was to raise money to construct the Women's Building, which they actually did by writing newspaper articles and selling ads. They even asked female architects from around the South to submit designs, and they chose one to build this building. It was the success of the Women's Building exhibit and this board that prompted the idea to organize the Atlanta Women's Club. And of course, the Atlanta Women's Club has its own episode too. I mainly talk about Rebecca Lowe in that one, but it was really four clubs that came together. And so Nellie was a representative of the Every um, Saturday History Club. The Atlanta Women's Club was then incorporated into the Atlanta Federation of Women's Club in 1899. And then they all together joined the Georgia Federation of Women's Clubs. So Nellie would serve three terms as president of the Georgia Federation of Women's Clubs. Earlier, I mentioned um, that farm after her father's death. So back in 1847, her father purchased 1,500 acres in Gordon County. And he was well known for innovative farming techniques and actually um, selling Angora goats, if you wanted one of those. But after Richard's death, the operation of the farm fell under the umbrella of the Peters Land Company. So Nellie's two brothers shuffled the responsibility, but nobody really wanted it. And it was Nellie that had a true love and desire for agriculture. She managed the land mostly from her Atlanta house. She would visit the farm, though, once a month, and she kept immaculate booking records. The farm continued to be very profitable year after year, mostly due to her work. And this persona as an agricultural activist led her to speaking engagements throughout the country. In 1917, she was the first woman ever asked to make the commencement address at the Agricultural and Mechanical School in Americus, Georgia. She was also a leading proponent of the country life movement, which was like a rural reform movement going on at the time. She would go on to serve as a representative for the Department of Conservation during World War I. She was president of the Conference of Southern Women. She was director of the School Garden Army of Georgia. She was chair of the Georgia Division of the Women's Council of National Defense. I, if I read this all, I could be here for days. <laughs> I swear if there was a committee or an organization to be a part of in the state of Georgia, she was part of it. And all of this was done by a woman that would die before ever seeing the right to vote. Nellie Peters Black died of heart failure in August of 1919 at the age of 68. As I said at the start of the episode, an editor claimed that if she'd been born a man, she would have easily been a senator. The Atlanta Journal noted that, quote, no man or woman in the last century has exerted a stronger influence for the uplift and advancement of the state, end quote. 
1976, she was honored as one of Georgia's 25 historic mothers. And in 1996, she was inducted into the Georgia Woman of Achievement Hall of Fame. And so there you have it, this week's short story about Nellie Peters Black. Thank you for listening to the podcast and sharing it. If you're enjoying it, leave a rating or a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. If there's another woman you'd like me to talk about, I have a list, but I always want to add to it, especially for people that not everybody has heard about. Hope everyone has a great weekend, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>